Section 9, Chapters 31 through 34 of The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter by Ambrose Bierce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 31 The superior sent for me, and with a strange foreboding I followed his messenger down the difficult way to the lake and embarked in the boat. Occupied with gloomy reflections and presentiments of impending evil, I hardly observed that we had left the shore before the sound of merry voices appraised me of our arrival at St. Bartholomew. On the beautiful meadow surrounding the dwellings of the superior were a great number of people, priests, friars, mountaineers, and hunters. Many were there who had come from afar with great retinues of servants and boys. In the house was a great bustle, a confusion and a hurrying to and fro, as during a fair. The doors stood wide open, and people ran in and out, clamoring noisily. The dogs yelped and howled as loud as they could. On a stand under the oak was a great cask of beer, and many of the people were gathered about it, drinking. Inside the house, too, there seemed to be much drinking, for I saw many men near the windows with mighty cups in their hands. On entering I encountered throngs of servants carrying dishes of fish and game. I asked one of them when I could see the superior. He answered that his reverence would be down immediately after the meal, and I concluded to wait in the hall. The halls were hung with pictures of some large fish which had been caught in the lake. Below each picture the weight of the monster and the date of its capture, together with the name of the person taking it, were inscribed in large letters. I could not help interpreting these records, perhaps uncharitably, as intimations to all good Christians to pray for the souls of those whose names were inscribed. After more than an hour the superior descended the stairs. I stepped forward, saluting him humbly as became my position. He nodded, eyed me sharply, and directed me to go to his apartment immediately after supper. This I did. "'How about your soul, my son Ambrosius?' he asked me solemnly. Has the Lord shown you grace? Have you endured the probation? Humbly, with my head bowed, I answered, Most reverend father, God, in my solitude, has given me knowledge. Of what? Of your guilt? This I affirmed. Praise be to God! exclaimed the superior. I knew, my son, that solitude would speak to your soul with the tongue of an angel. I have good tidings for you. I have written in your behalf to the Bishop of Salzburg. He summons you to his palace. He will consecrate you and give you holy orders in person, and you will remain in his city. Prepare yourself, for in three days you are to leave." The superior looked sharply into my face again, but I did not permit him to see into my heart. I asked for his benediction, bowed, and left him. Ah, then it was for this that I was summoned. I am to go away forever. I must leave my very life behind me. I must renounce my care and protection of Benedicta. God help her and me. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 I am once more in my mountain home, but tomorrow I leave it forever. But why am I sad? Does not a great blessing await me? Have I not ever looked forward to the moment of my consecration with longing? believing it would bring me the supreme happiness of my life? And now that this great joy is almost within my grasp, I am sad beyond measure. Can I approach the altar of the Lord with a lie on my lips? 
Can I receive the holy sacrament as an impostor? The holy oil upon my forehead would turn to fire and burn into my brain, and I should be forever damned. I might fall upon my knees before the bishop and say, Expel me, for I do not seek after the love of Christ, nor after holy and heavenly things, but after the things of this world. If I so spoke I should be punished, but I could endure that without a murmur. If only I were sinless and could rightly become a priest, I could be of great service to the poor child, I should be able to give her infinite blessings and consolations, I could be her confessor and absolve her from sin, and if I should outlive her, which God forbid, might by my prayers even redeem her soul from purgatory. I could read masses for the souls of her poor dead parents, already in torment. Above all, if I succeed in preserving her from that one great and destructive sin for which she secretly longs, if I could take her with me and place her under thy protection, O blessed Virgin, that would be happiness indeed. But where is the sanctuary that would receive the hangman's daughter? I know it but too well. When I am gone from here, the evil one, in the winning shape he has assumed, will prevail, and she will be lost in time and in eternity. End of chapter 32 Chapter 33 I have been at Benedicta's cabin. Benedicta, I said, I am going away from here, away from the mountains, away from you. She grew pale, but said nothing. For a moment I was overcome with emotion. I seemed to choke and could not continue. Presently I said, Poor child, what will become of you? I know that your love for Rokas is strong, and love is like a torrent which nothing can stay. There is no safety for you but in clinging to the cross of our Saviour. Promise me that you will do so. Do not let me go away in misery, Benedicta. Am I, then, so wicked? she said, without lifting her eyes from the ground. Can I not be trusted? Ah, but, Benedicta, the enemy is strong, and you have a traitor to unbar the gates. Your own heart, poor child, will at last betray you. He will not harm me, she murmured. You wrong him, sir. Indeed you do. But I knew that I did not, and was all the more concerned to judge that the wolf would use the arts of the fox. Before the sacred purity of this maiden, the base passions of the youth had not dared to declare themselves. But nonetheless I knew that an hour would come when she would have need of all her strength, and it would fail her. I grasped her arm and demanded that she take an oath that she would throw herself into the waters of the Black Lake rather than into the arms of Rokas. But she would not reply. She remained silent, her eyes fixed upon mine, with a look of sadness and reproach which filled my mind with the most melancholy thoughts, and turning away, I left her. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 Lord, Saviour of my soul, whither hast thou led me? Here I am in the culprit's tower, a condemned murderer, and to-morrow at sunrise I shall be taken to the gallows and hanged. For whoso slays a fellow-being, he shall be slain. That is the law of God and man. On this, the last day of my life, I have asked that I be permitted to write, and my prayer is granted. In the name of God, and in the truth, I shall now set down all that occurred. 
Leaving Benedicta, I returned to my cabin, and, having packed everything, waited for the boy. But he did not come. I should have to remain in the mountains another night. I grew restless. The cabin seemed too narrow to hold me. The air was too heavy and hot to sustain life. Going outside, I lay upon a rock and looked up at the sky, dark and glittering with stars. But my soul was not in the heavens. It was at the cabin by the black lake. Suddenly I heard a faint distant cry, like a human voice. I sat upright and listened, but all was still. It may have been, I thought, the note of some night-bird. I was about to lie down again when the cry was repeated. But it seemed to come from another direction. It was the voice of Benedicta. It sounded again, and now it seemed to come from the air, from the sky above my head, and distinctly it called my name. But, O oh, Mother of God, what anguish was in those tones! I leapt from the rock. Benedicta! Benedicta! I cried aloud. There was no reply. Benedicta, I am coming to thee, child. I sprang away in the darkness, along the path to the black lake. I ran and leapt, stumbling and falling over rocks and stumps of trees. My limbs were bruised, my clothing was torn, but I gave no heed. Benedicta was in distress, and I alone could save and guard her. I rushed on until I reached the black lake. But at the cabin all was quiet. There was neither light nor sound. Everything was as peaceful as a house of God. After waiting a long time, I left. The voice that I had heard calling me could not have been Benedicta's, but must have been that of some evil spirit mocking me in my great sorrow. I meant to return to my cabin, but an invisible hand directed my steps another way, and although it led me to the death, I know it to have been the hand of the Lord. Walking on, hardly knowing whither, and unable to find the path by which I had descended, I found myself at the foot of a precipice. Here was a narrow path leading steeply upward along the face of the cliff, and I began ascending it. After I had gone up some distance I looked above, and saw outlined against the starry sky a cabin perched upon the very verge. It flashed through my mind that this was the hunting lodge of the salt master's son and this the path by which he visited Benedicta. Merciful father! He, Rokus, was certain to come this way. There could be no other. I would wait for him here. I crouched in the shadow and waited, thinking what to say to him and imploring the Lord for inspiration to change his heart and turn him from his evil purpose. Before long I heard him approaching from above. I heard the stones displaced by his foot roll down the steep slopes and leap into the lake far below. Then I prayed God that if I should be unable to soften the youth's heart, he might miss his footing and fall, too, like the stones, for it would be better that he should meet a sudden and impenitent death and his soul be lost than that he should live to destroy the soul of an innocent girl. Turning at an angle of the rock, he stood directly before me as, rising, I stepped into the faint light of the new moon. He knew me at once, and in a haughty tone asked me what I wanted. I replied mildly, explaining why I had barred his way, and begging him to go back. He insulted and derided me. "'You miserable towler,' he said. "'Will you never cease meddling in my affairs?' Because the mountain maids are so foolish as to praise your white teeth and your big black eyes, 
Must you fancy yourself a man and not a monk? You are no more to women than a goat." I begged him to desist and to listen to me. I threw myself on my knees and implored him, however he might despise me and my humble though holy station, to respect Benedicta and spare her. But he pushed me from him with his foot upon my breast. No longer master of myself, I sprang erect and called him an assassin and a villain. At this he pulled a dagger from his belt, saying, I will send you to hell. Quick as a flash of lightning my hands were upon his wrist. I wrested the knife from him and flung it behind me, crying, Not with weapons, but unarmed and equal, we will fight to the death, and the Lord shall decide. We sprang upon each other with the fury of wild animals, and were instantly locked together with arms and hands. We struggled upward and downward along the path, with the great wall of rock on one side, and on the other the precipice, the abyss, the waters of the black lake. We writhed and strained for the advantage, but the Lord was against me, for he permitted my enemy to overcome me and throw me down on the edge of the precipice. I was in the grasp of a strong enemy, whose eyes glowed like coals of fire. His knee was on my breast and my head hung over the edge. My life was in his hands. I thought he would push me over, but he made no attempt to do so. He held me there between life and death for a dreadful time, then said in a low hissing voice, You see, monk, if I but move I can hurl you down the abyss like a stone. But I care not to take your life, for it is no impediment to me. The girl belongs to me, and to me you shall leave her. Do you understand? With that he rose and left me, going down the path toward the lake. His footfalls had long died away in the silent night, before I was able to move hand or foot. Great God! I surely did not deserve such defeat, humiliation, and pain. I had but wished to save a soul, yet heaven permitted me to be conquered by him who would destroy it. Finally I was able to rise, although in great pain for I was bruised by my fall, and could still feel the fierce youth's knee upon my breast and his fingers about my throat. I walked with difficulty back along the path, downward toward the lake. Wounded as I was, I would return to Benedicta's cabin and interpose my body between her and harm. But my progress was slow, and I had frequently to rest, yet it was near dawn before I gave up the effort, convinced that I should be too late to do the poor child the small service of yielding up my remnant of life in her defense. At early dawn I heard Rokus returning with a merry song upon his lips. I concealed myself behind a rock, though not in fear, and he passed without seeing me. At this point there was a break in the wall of the cliff, the path crossing a great crevice that clove the mountain as by a sword-stroke from the arm of a titan. The bottom was strewn with loose boulders and overgrown with brambles and shrubs, through which trickled a slender stream of water fed by the melting snows above. Here I remained for three days and two nights. I heard the boy from the monastery calling my name as he traversed the path searching for me, but I made no answer. Not once did I quench my burning thirst at the brook, nor appease my hunger with blackberries that grew abundantly on every side. Thus I mortified the sinful flesh, killed rebellious nature, 
and subdued my spirit to the Lord, until at last I felt myself delivered from all evil, freed from the bondage of an earthly love, and prepared to devote my heart and soul and life to no woman but thee, O blessed Virgin. The Lord having wrought this miracle, my soul felt as light and free as if wings were lifting me to the skies. I praised the Lord in a loud voice, shouting and rejoicing till the rocks rang with the sound. I cried, Hosanna, Hosanna! I was now prepared to go before the altar and receive the holy oil upon my head. I was no longer myself. Ambrosius, the poor erring monk, was dead. I was an instrument in the right hand of God to execute his holy will. I prayed for the delivery of the soul of the beautiful maiden, and as I prayed, behold, there appeared to me in the splendor and glory of heaven the Lord himself, attended by innumerable angels, filling half the sky. A great rapture enthralled my senses. I was dumb with happiness. With a smile of ineffable benignity God spake to me. Because that thou hast been faithful to thy trust, and through all the trials that I have sent upon thee hast not faltered, the salvation of the sinless maiden's soul is now indeed given into thy hand. Thou, Lord, knowest, I replied, that I am without the means to do this work, nor know I how it is to be done. The Lord commanded me to rise and walk on turning my face away from the glorious presence which filled the heart of the cloven mountain with light, I obeyed, leaving the scene of my purgation and regaining the path that led up the face of the cliff. I began the ascent, walking on and on in the splendor of the sunset reflected from crimson clouds. Suddenly I felt impelled to stop and look down, and there at my feet, shining red in the cloud-light, as if stained with blood, lay the sharp knife of Rochus. Now I understood why the Lord had permitted that wicked youth to conquer me, yet had moved him to spare my life. I had been reserved for a more glorious purpose, and so was placed in my hands the means to that sacred end. My God, my God, how mysterious are thy ways! End of chapter 34